like to welcome to our pulpit this morning, or not our pulpit, the pulpit of the Lord Jesus Christ. I was mistaken there. Uh, I'd like to welcome Paul. Paul, please come forward. Reverend Paul Carter to the pulpit this morning. Uh, Paul ministered at Grace Presbyterian Church in Lexington, Virginia for 37 years. So right out of the gate, before he says a word, he's he has my admiration uh, for a man who's done it more than a week. Uh, I have great admiration. So, Paul, please come and open God's words. Good to see your family together. Please introduce your wife and your son as he's with us as well. Thank you, brother. Well, I do have a wife and, uh, and a good one. And uh, we've been married, I think, 47 years now. We're closing in on it. Uh, we have four sons, uh, seven grandchildren. One of my sons is here with us. My wife, Julie, is sitting there, and Jonathan is sitting beside her. And he uh, looks like me, so you'll know. I grew up in Lakeside, and uh, some of the elders in the earlier years of this church were folks that I went to college with and remain friends today. I've known several of the folks in this church over the years have been here. Uh, Lexington was in James River Presbytery for a good while and so I uh, was here for Presbytery meetings and uh, various other things as well. Uh, and and uh, But the paint's a lot better off than it was in those days as well as the, <laughs> the heat in those days uh, the pipes would bang consistently for the first hour and a half or so of any meeting. And so uh, I'm glad to see progress has been, been made here. We are in Matthew this morning. This is the uh, first Sunday of Advent, so it's a, a nod to the fact that, uh, that Christmas is coming. But it's uh, more than that. It's a uh, uh, a passage which speaks to us of the fact that we do live in enemy territory, which I'll talk about in just a minute. I'm going to focus on verses 6 through 12 of chapter 2 of Matthew, but I'm going to read starting in verse 1 and read all the way down through verse 12. So it goes this way. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For, for we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born, they told him. In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the, the uh, rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Well, then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word that I may too come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother. They fell down, and they worshipped him. 
And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. And thus, the word of the Lord. Let's pray. quietness of our hearts we come asking that you would undivide divided hearts make them one make us a people focused entirely on obedience to you and the grace that is ours in Christ and to hear your word proclaimed now we pray so in Jesus name amen well as I understand, oh, we're not on, are we? Is that a problem? How about now? Is that better? Y'all almost got away with sleeping. Well, you'll have to, you'll have to turn me up up there if it still needs to go up. How about now? Is that better? Still okay? No? As good as it's going to get? So again, as I understand the passage, one of the things that Matthew is showing us is that it is the will of God for the earthly life of Jesus to be spent in enemy territory. Of course, you know, that, that isn't any news to us. We're aware of that. It's, but it's more than simple information for us to, to read and then to just move on. But because Jesus lived his life on earth in enemy territory... We are seeing throughout these pages that our triune God cherishes us enough to send Jesus into enemy territory. And of course we're seeing that Jesus himself cherishes us enough to joyfully take our life, our death, in enemy territory so that we can dwell with him in the house of the Lord forever. And through the Spirit's gift of light and of life in our souls, we find in our previously darkened and enemy hearts that we have grown to cherish Him so deeply, though in this same enemy territory that He came to, that now, (laughs) it's shocking to many of us, to me, to see it in my life, that When we sing, were the whole realm of nature mine, that's a present far too small. And we mean it. We mean it deeply. There's a great benefit for us then to review the birth narratives at least once a year, if not more, because in them we are being given reason as if we needed more than the fact that this is Jesus, the God, the Son. We're being given reason to cherish Him above everything, above anything else. Johnny Erickson Tata wrote about the importance of that word cherish when it comes to Jesus. You've no doubt heard of her, so you probably remember that she lost the use of her arms and legs in a diving accident in 1967. She was 17 at the time. You may also know that she was diagnosed with breast cancer just a few years ago, And she said about the cancer, she said, I remember when it started to happen. And I remember thinking, oh God, give me a break. 
I mean, four decades in a wheelchair. Don't I get a little reprieve here? Don't I get some time off? After struggling for a time with a diagnosis, she said, I began to see that cancer wouldn't win if I died. Cancer would only win if I failed to cherish Jesus Christ. And so in the whole Bible, or as in the whole Bible, Matthew in this passage helps us to cherish Jesus Christ. And he does that first by teaching us to trust in God's eternal plan, as described in verse 6, which I'll read again in just a second. I was surprised when I found out that in the Jewish Bible, the, the Old Testament, of course, doesn't end with the book of Malachi like ours does, but, go, but ends with the book of Second Chronicles. And what's happening at the end of Second Chronicles is the last of a long list of unfaithful kings in Israel as they were taken off to exile. God's promise to David that he would have a son on his throne forever appears in those last chapters to have failed miserably. But his eternal plan did not fail. Here comes the book of Matthew, beginning with the words, This is the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David. So you can't help but notice with Jesus' birth, God has kept his promise that David would have a son on his throne forever. And that, to verse 6 of this passage, is pulling us to our knees in humble adoration. Lord, you have kept your word, we must say, and we can say, and we do say, over and over. And so the fact that God keeps his promises is spotlighted in these ancient words of Micah, recorded in verse 6. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. Well, you see the significance to us sitting here today. A small people of whom history will never take notice. God had made a promise, which of course is what prophecy is, are the promises of God. A promise to what we think of as a small, no-account town. And he kept it. He kept it fully. A king of David's lineage was given and David's city was honored that he was born there. I mean, really, I mean, would it have really mattered if Jesus was born in Nazareth and and it saved everybody the trouble of this trip? Well, yes, it would. God does not lie. And now we're even more sure that even the smallest, seemingly insignificant promises of God, our God will carefully keep. See, that, that's more than good to know for us who, who sometimes wonder if these promises, I'll never leave you nor forsake you, and I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. We wonder Do they really apply to me today? And of course, we come back. Yes, our God keeps every promise. One more thing in verse 6 that argues that we can count on God's eternal plan is that 
this promise is for a king who will shepherd his people Israel eternally. That his promises don't fail, of course, that's significant enough by itself. But they don't fail because they are given by our eternal and infinite shepherd, our good shepherd, who leads us down paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And because the promise of a shepherd is fulfilled in Jesus, of you it can be said. In fact, it must be said that all things work together for your salvation. All things. Herod, is Israel's ruler, was to be a shepherd over Israel. But of course, he was the epitome of why we, would, we want to run when we hear the words, I'm from the government and I'm here to help you. The book of Ezekiel has this whole chapter, as you know, given over to condemning the shepherds of Israel who had become like so many of the preachers that we keep reading about in the newspaper the last few years. But God, excuse me, God promised in Ezekiel 37 that he will be a shepherd for his people. The kings of Chronicles couldn't fulfill that role completely and few of them seemed to even try. But God has given an eternal and an infinite shepherd in answer to his promise to David and in answer to his promise to us to redeem us, to shepherd us forever. And so, I mean, isn't this a wonderful builder of faith and love when we come across events that can be explained in no other way but that God has done this? such as this passage, and many events in our own lives. And that's what we see in this big promise to such a small town. And doesn't seeing that fill your heart? So that truly when we sing and we pray and we praise God, it always can be translated into these glorious words of acclamation, to God be the glory, great things He has done. We can entrust ourselves to Him, and and we can cherish the One who makes sure that in life and death, everything works together for our salvation, everything. God has promised, and in Jesus, He has done it. He has done it. And so even in this strange promise made to a small village, And of course, throughout the book of Matthew, we find in the background the message is still what it always has been. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we sincerely cherish Him above all else. That's the work of the Spirit in us, isn't it? And so it being right and righteous always to trust in the most minute promises of God, and and so to cherish Him above all else. And it's also right to worship this King in our world of opposites. That's my second point, to worship this King in our world of opposites, verses 7 through 12. What I mean by world of opposites is that things are done here that are opposite of how we would do them. For example, It looks like Jesus is put right into the hands of his enemies by being born so close to Herod and then Herod finding out about his birth. Come on, really? 
It looks like God's plan that is resting totally on this child would be killed before it got going. But of course it was opposite day. And if the goal was trying to protect the life of Jesus and ours through him, because that's what's at stake, isn't it? The worst thing that the Magi could have done was to go to Jerusalem and start asking about this new king that was born. Everybody was bound to be upset by the question, and Magi should have known that. They were smart people, weren't they? Everybody knew King Herod, who was not really Jewish, was afraid of losing his position as king over Israel and would have no regard for the lives of of anyone who stood in his way. And he proved that, didn't he? But God does something that gives us even more reason to cherish him and to worship him in a world that apart from his revelation in Scripture, makes us say almost every day, what is going on around here now? In fact, Elizabeth Elliot once wrote in her diary, I read somewhere once that anyone who is not confused is very badly informed. (laughs) It would be real confusing. And just downright alarming to Joseph and Mary to find out the Magi had told Herod about their child. And then they promised that they would go back and tell him where to find them. Of course, in a a second opposite, by the Magi passing through Herod's house first, God's doing what we probably wouldn't even think to do in that situation. He's sending his messengers to to appeal even to the one who is probably the most dangerous person in the world to Jesus right then. To appeal to him? Come on. I mean, knowing the potential, why would you give him an opportunity to even to come to Jesus in humble repentance and define grace? Doesn't really make sense. I mean, we don't tend to feel any pity for Herod, but God does. His pity toward Herod is seeing that he is getting another opportunity to repent. And, of course, Herod responds to Jesus by showing the the very depth of the evil that's in his own heart once again. And, And so the message becomes for him that of judgment and condemnation rather than grace and peace. But you see in this more of the heart and the working of God than we have time to talk about today. But you can pursue it later today and in the coming days yourself. Still, the Magi just don't seem that wise to me. As they naively give Herod too much information when Herod asks for help to find Jesus. You remember that great great quote of Queen Elizabeth that she it said it was said that she hoped that Jesus would come back in her lifetime so that she could cast her crown before him. Well, we know that isn't Herod's motivation in verses 7 and 8 of this passage. His motivation is to keep what he's got, not offer it to the true king. Psalm 2 says, The kings of the earth set themselves against God and his Christ. But God simply laughs, and their plans have no impact on his. And so against all odds, we read in verses 9 through 11, The Magi go, and they bow in worship, 
and they offer him gifts. People that had no connection to the scripture, they, had, they saw stars. That's why they showed up. How does that work? But in God's providence, there they are. While Herod, who at least had some connection to the scriptures, wants to kill him. That's an opposite in itself, isn't it? How can we not cherish our God who lets his enemies do what they want to do, but we know that they are ultimately powerless to perform anything but that which progresses his will on earth? It's the plans of our God that succeed at just the right time and in just the right way and not the plans of the enemies of our souls. So again, how can we not cherish one who overcomes by turning everything totally upside down? So that even what seems to bring the worst scenarios into our lives, once again, must work must work only for our salvation. I mean, how can we not love the one who himself went through this kind of suffering at the start of his life and more throughout his life leading up to taking on the full wrath of God so that we experience only goodness and mercy all the days of our lives and we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever with him. I mean, worship really is the obvious response to such a Lord and Savior, isn't it? And so cherishing Him, even in a world where things are so upside down, but always work to the advantage of our eternal souls, makes perfect sense, doesn't it? The salvation of our eternal souls is the reason Jesus is being protected from Herod in this story. It's one of the reasons. Verse 12 speaks, See, we see that protection in particular. His protection is protecting us. And exactly like the way our lives work, this protection doesn't come by God keeping him from dangers and toils and snares. It comes in the middle of great dangers, toils, and snares. And And, of course, we'd have to admit, well, really, it's even more than that. It's these great dangers themselves that promote the work of God in our lives and in this odd world. (laughs) And so we notice and we smile at and we deeply rejoice that in everything in this passage, Jesus was not hidden, but was spotlighted to his enemies. It didn't cause us any heartburn at all that the Magi came and asked the one person they shouldn't have where to find the newborn king. And we don't ask, well, you know, shouldn't God have stopped them before walking into Herod's palace? I mean, shouldn't he have given them some angelic message or something? We don't complain that You know, just one dream would have been enough to warn these guys to bypass Jerusalem or at least keep their mouth shut when they got there. But no. (laughs) We rejoice instead that Jesus brought our salvation not by escaping life, but by living it for us so that we can also rejoice that in our place condemned He stood. 
Well, let me end this way. The story of the Magi reminds me of the the book of Job in that God is showcasing his servant in front of his enemies instead of hiding him. To me, on the one of the most amazing features of the book of Job was that God allowed Satan to do his work so that Job's very life became Job's worst enemy. Job's wife saw that and gave that solution that many angrily adopt in their own day. Well, curse God and go kill yourself. There's no hope. But God used Satan the enemy of Job's soul and the one who intended to destroy his faith to strengthen Job's faith, giving him a deeper love for God. In the middle of his misery, his words of faith and even of joy ring out when he says, I know my Redeemer lives. And he will stand upon the earth at last. And after my body has decayed, yet I will see God. If Job lived with us today in Richmond, he'd be here among us. He'd be standing, he'd be singing through his tears, Come, thou long-expected Jesus. Just like we do. His excursion into the depths of enemy territory was a a, a fearful experience, but certainly the result was that his relationship and walk with God became more central to him, more sweet. And he says that when he says at the end of the book, you know, I heard of you with my ears, but now my eyes see you. In Job's time, Satan was allowed a place before the throne of God where he would stand and accuse people of their sins. And Satan accused Job of hypocrisy because he said, you know, Job's only faithful to you, God, because he's never gone through any suffering. Satan was wrong. And now, though enemy territory is still where we who belong to Jesus live, We have no accuser in heaven to accuse us before God. You remember Jesus' words when his disciples came back from their preaching mission? I saw Satan fall from heaven. Before the throne of God, we now have an advocate who is our Redeemer, so that justice smiles and asks no more. But until this world is made totally new, When Jesus comes again, we still live in enemy territory where the enemies of our souls seek to have us curse God and die. And so throughout the book of Matthew, we keep seeing examples of people who understand, who confess their faith with us through the opening question of the Heidelberg Catechism, which we'll all say in a minute, what's your only hope in life and in death? That I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, I'm not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for my sins and delivered me from the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, all things must be subservient to my salvation. 
And therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live for him. Isn't that your experience? Growing, not perfect, but hasn't that been your experience? And so in the middle of real life and not in the absence of these dangerous toils and fears, snares as John Newton put it, grace has brought us safe thus far and grace will lead us home. And it is that way because the promise of God can never fail. God's protection of Jesus' small body that we see here is protection for our eternal souls because of his promise to give a redeemer to us, his people. And with that kind of promise kept, then we agree with what Joan, Johnny Erickson Tata said about her cancer. And we believe that the enemy of, of our souls does not win through the troubles that rain down into our lives unless, of course, we forget the gospel and so fail to cherish Jesus. Let's pray. Father, may it never be said of us that we have failed to cherish Jesus. Above all else, we pray that by your grace, by your mercy, we would see him in every event. We would recognize opportunities to witness to the truth that Our Jesus is magnificent, that our gospel is true, that our lives are made new. We're new creations in Him in every event, every conversation. In the times of sadness and the times of despair, may we look again to the light that is Christ Himself. But above all, cherish Him. Cherish Him deeply. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.